Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. and welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me, as usual, is Ellie Mistal. How you doing, Joe? I got about six to eight more weeks before my second child comes to ruin my life. That's true, that's true. But you're going to get a little bit of a, well, I mean, I don't know whether you define paternity leave as a break. No, I don't define the torture of sleep deprivation as a break. No, I don't. Um, but there is something that's grinding my gears today. Speaking of my family, I took them with me to a conference that I was in in D.C. Um, the last couple of weeks. And as I was preparing to drive them, I realized that my car that I bought a year ago had, you know, it needed to be inspected again because you have to get the car inspected every year. And then I realized that the registration had lapsed because you have to go online and do a thing to get your re- – why is my car more heavily regulated than a gun I could buy at Walmart? Why is that so? Um, I, there's not really much of a constituency for the non-regulation of cars, I think is the issue. Uh, there's no vested gun manufacturing lobby to protect I brought, it. I brought this up um, one time way back in the day. Um, I, was on, I was on the Geraldo Rivera show. Um, don't ask me why. Um, and I was at a gun range in New Jersey, and I made my little car point because I had to be driven there. And, and the gun range shooting guy was like, well – they're not a fundamental right to drive a car, but they're a fundamental right to hold a gun. And I'm like, well, kind of, but not real, right? That's not actually true. Yes, I get that we have put gun, gun rights in a whole big, splashy amendment. But if the government tried to take away everybody's car tomorrow, that would also be unconstitutional. I mean, it, w- it would certainly seem like that would have some constitutional problems. That's Probably true. not uh, not of the level of a constitutional amendment, but that would be a taking. That it would be a taking. I think they would have a, a difficult time proving there was some, you know, rational basis to take away your car from you. But they can regulate me to death with this thing. Yeah. I mean, it, amazingly, and amazingly, they can't do that with guns, despite the fact that the word regulate is literally in the amendment. That's what's bothering me today. Well, but that's good. I mean, I unfortunately, there's not much sparring we can have over this. I, I think you're right. So, Do you even know how to drive? Oh, yes, I drive all the time. <laughs> I don't own a car because I live in New York, and that would seem silly, but I rent cars all the time. I you like do like Zipcar stuff? Uh, Zipcars. So like you're getting a little like Ford Focus on through Red Hook? Yeah, or go out to, uh, go out to the airport and get a car. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Does that make you feel a little emasculated because like you don't have wheels of your own? You can't, uh, no. you can't access the open road like a true American? Not really. It doesn't bother you? Yeah. Good no. for you. Good for yeah. you. I'm glad you've evolved to this uh, point. I can access the open road. I, what I, the only thing I'm missing by not owning a car is accessing the closed, horrible roads of Manhattan. So. <laughs> Fair right, enough. Look, Well, let's get into our discussion today. Today, we're going to talk about elections, and in particular, election law. Our guest is Rick Hazen, who's a professor of law and political science at the University of California, Irvine. More importantly, he's, I mean, not probably more important to him, but more important (laughs) for our purposes, he runs the excellent election law blog, which is at electionlawblog.org. I'll put in a plug right now. It's the best election blog on the internet. Absolutely. And, it, and it's been kind of more importantly a resource for all of us over the last several years as election law issues have become more and more 
and more important as we've had, well, we'll talk about a lot of the election law shenanigans that have come up over the last several years. Uh, so let's bring in Professor Hazen. Hello. Good morning. Hey. So we wanted to talk about election law, and obviously there's a major election law decision that we're right now expecting to come out in the next few days. And by the time this airs, we'll know how it turns out. So Unless the court wants to extend into July. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we're, we're assuming we're going to find out. And so at the, we're not going to make predictions because that'll make us look probably silly when, when the case has already come out afterwards. But we did want to talk a little bit about Arizona legislature and just kind of walk us through what that case is about, really. Sure. Well, you know, uh, redistricting is probably the most arcane area of election law. People really who are not in the field don't understand it. And for good reason, it's kind of it's kind of dull, but it's actually very important. The question is uh, how we draw the lines for electing both uh, state legislators, and, as well as members of Congress, often for city councils, they're drawn. And so you can draw the lines in all kinds of ways. And one, one of the ways that politicians like to draw the lines is to help themselves. And so in response Fancy to that, that, yeah, in response to that, the uh, uh, people of Arizona passed a voter initiative, which set up an independent commission to draw the lines in an attempt to try to make things a little less uh, self-interested. We also have that uh, similar kind of situation in California. The question before the Supreme Court involves Arizona's, an aspect of Arizona's law, it involves the drawing of lines as to congressional districts. And the claim is that having an independent commission draw the lines as to uh, congressional districts violates that part of the Constitution, which gives state legislatures the power to set the rules for congressional elections subject to an override by Congress. And so the question is, uh, when the voters set up this commission and this commission is drawing the lines and the legislature has no say, does that violate this provision of the Constitution? If the answer to that question is yes, uh, that means that uh, it would be constitutionally required to have redistricting decisions at least partially in the hands of state legislators when it comes to drawing congressional districts. It, It also might mean that it will be hard to engage in other kinds of election reform through the initiative process, like moving to a different kind of primary uh, as to congressional elections, if the legislature has to have a hand in those things too. I just want to double down on how important these laws are. My, my father, I don't know if you know this, Rick, my father used to be a county legislator um, out on Long Island. And so uh, when he had that position, the county legislators draw the districts for their own seats. And so I've seen this process. And Let me just tell you this. It's just past Father's Day, so I don't want to speak ill. You don't want my dad drawing his own district, all right? Because that thing is not going to be about democracy. That thing is going to be about – my dad was literally like, oh, there was a point where he was drawing the line being like, nah, I don't like people on that that other house. That house, everybody on that side of the street, they like Jimmy, and it it was ridiculous. So – when you, when you start talking about legislators being able to draw their own maps, you're, you're really – I don't want to say you're talking – you're getting close to some kind of universal height of corruption there yeah, by well, design. You also get a lot of uh, litigation that comes out of these redistrictings. You get voting rights litigation and constitutional litigation. And, and, and there's some thinking that by having independent commissions draw these lines, you actually make it less likely that these things go to court or, or that they get mired in court for years. Exactly. Now – 
here's the thing, right? So we we think that we're, again we don't want to make predictions about the court, um, but the history of this court and correct me if I'm wrong seems to be that they're going to do whatever they can do to make sure that as many people as possible are disenfranchised. Is that <laughs> it, am I exaggerating there? I think you're exaggerating there, and uh, you know the Supreme Court, of course, historically has done a lot to enfranchise people. I think of the one person, one vote rule. Uh, if you're talking about the Roberts Court, yeah, I would say court. I would say that, you know if you're talking about what's happened in the last ten years, I would say that the or that the Roberts Court has upheld laws that make it harder for people to vote, uh, especially voter ID laws. This case. Again, you know, uh, if this is airing after the the opinion issues, I'm really not sure what the court's going to do. In part because if we think of Justice Kennedy as the perennial swing justice who could vote either way. He grew up in California. And he has a lot of respect for the initiative process and understands that it could be a good bypass to get around legislative self interest. So I'm really not sure how this comes out. Plus, there's a there's a long history. I was surprised they took this case because a long history of the Supreme Court interpreting the word legislature in this context to be broader than just the state legislature to really be all the different uh, organs of government. Uh, and it would really open up a can of worms. So it's not always true that the court sides against voters. There have been a number of cases like that, and I think more are coming down the pike. Uh, but it is an important case that uh, may get buried under the press about the Obamacare case and same-sex marriage. How did this become such a partisan issue? Are we at this level of partisanship just because of the kind of changing demographics and red states going purple and all that? Is is it as cynical as that? Or is there any kind of, I don't know, is there a conservative ideology here that makes sense beyond the real politic of the issue? Well, I think in the redistricting case, it's not really partisan because – I could tell you that the Republicans out here in California are very worried about the Arizona decision because in California we had Democrats drawing district lines and uh, making it <laughs> tough for Republicans. And uh, Republicans worked with good government groups like Common Cause in California and passed this redistricting measure. They really want to keep it in place. So this one doesn't break down on partisan lines, but lots of these other cases do. It's partisanship and it's ideology. I think that there's a conservative ideology that says that voting is about choosing the best candidate. And if, that, if that's what voting is about or, or making the best choice on a ballot measure, then it might make sense to impose limits so that people who are not educated enough or interested enough or have enough of a stake get to vote. I mean, that, that, that sounds like you might uh, like literacy tests or property qualifications, things like that. So I think there is this echo of that. For example, in conservative calls against early voting, that people are going to make bad decisions. If you look on the liberal side, the ideology there tends to be that voting is not about choosing the best candidate or, or making the best choice on a ballot measure, but about dividing power up among political equals. And there we can't say that someone who has different background or different level of education or, or has different uh, property values might be better qualified to vote for one thing or another. And so I think there is an ideological issue that is beneath uh, the surface as well. But there's certainly a lot of partisanship on the part of those legislators that pass laws like these voter ID laws that are making it harder for some people who tend to skew Democratic to be able to cast a ballot. You know, we've talked a little bit about this districting case that's obviously on the immediate horizon for us right now. But there's a couple more cases that are coming down in the future that we wanted to transition and talk a little bit about too. We were talking about the one person, one vote mentality that you brought up earlier. And that brings us to, is it Evanwell or Evenwell? I don't really know. Um, I don't know the pronunciation yeah. of that, but I'm Hassan, not Hasten, by the way. 
Oh, really? Told you. You know, you know what's weird is I'll tell you exactly how I got to that pronunciation, which is this morning I went, you know, I don't really know which way it is. So I listened to another podcast you were on and they introduced you as Hazen. And I was like, oh, then I guess they must have been right. So yeah, well, I, I at I, least did research. I just did bad research. Yes. Well, I, uh, I once told uh, someone introducing me that it's Hassan Rhymes with Fasten and she introduced me as Rick Fasten. So uh, that's good. <laughs> uh, yeah. So in the, in the Evanwell or Evenwell case, uh, however we're going to yeah. pronounce that, uh, the question uh, that it's also a redistricting case. It also involves one person, one vote. And this is being brought by uh, Ed Blum, uh, the Project on Fair Representation. They're the folks that brought us the anti-affirmative action case that went to the Supreme Court, the Fisher case. Mm-hmm. They're also the ones that brought us the Shelby County case, which is the 2013 case where the Supreme Court gutted a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, that's this, where Roberts uh, ended racism in the South. Yeah, well, things are different in the South, he told us. Um, <laughs> and so what, uh, what's at stake in Evanwell is the question of when you're drawing these districts that have to have roughly equal populations in them, do you count only voters or do you count people? Now, you might say, well, what's the difference? Well, here are some people that don't count if you count only voters. Children, non-citizens, felons who, don't, who no uh, longer have or, or have not gotten back the franchise. And this seems to be aimed at parts of Texas where there are uh, large numbers of Latinos living in districts who are not citizens eligible to vote. And the effect of this case, if the uh, Blum forces are uh, able to win, would be to shift power from cities where there are more uh, non-citizens and more children and you know, people who uh, wouldn't count, shift power from cities to rural areas and from Democrats to Republicans. This strikes me as a very much a partisan effort. I was shocked that the Supreme Court decided to take this case because the Supreme Court has said since the 1966 case called Burns versus Richardson out of Hawaii that states can really choose the denominator. They could choose voters, total voters. They could choose something based on total population. Further, we don't have good data if we were just going to draw based on voters, and, and, and it would be kind of a mess. The census doesn't collect the kind of data that we would need to draw these lines. And so I'm really shocked that the court agreed to take the case and worried about what that means. I think Roberts is about to tell us that some voters are only worth three-fifths. That, that was exactly the metaphor I was going to use. That, that's what it, it screams that kind of mentality yeah. when you dig into this. They'll, they'll dress it up nicely, though. Well, you know, what's really interesting is the Constitution specifically, you know, where it had the three-fifths clause, that was for the question of apportioning Congress among the states. So states get, every state gets at least one member of Congress, and then how many you get total depends upon your share of the population relative to the other states. There, as the Constitution was amended to get rid of the three-fifths clause at the end of the uh, Civil War, when the Constitution was amended, three-fifths was gone, but it still said apportionment about by, of the people in the states, total population, right? Not the voters right. of the states, but people. And so if Evanwell uh, is successful, you'd have this situation where you would use people to figure out how many members of Congress each state would get, but you would use voters within each state to draw the districts. It would kind of be kind of an odd choice. And I really hope that the Supreme Court does not go down that path. Yeah, it seemed very... Very scary uh, when when that one entered the new queue for decision. Is yeah, there any case coming up that would allow us to disenfranchise people who watched the the Keeping Up with the Kardashians? 
Well, you know, the, those who say that some people should pass a literacy test, you know, uh, I think you're, you've got some good company there. And Coulter, uh, maybe. <laughs> if you're right there. But uh, let me give you one reason why the court might have taken the Evenwell case, or Evanwell case. It came up on a weird procedural path, which conservatives have been now trying to use as much as they can. So, you know, most cases get to the Supreme Court. They start in a federal district court or a state court. They go to an appellate court or a state Supreme Court. And then they come up to the Supreme Court on something called a cert petition. When the Supreme Court decides to take or not take a case, it decides to not take the case. It has no precedential value. It means nothing. But there is a small subset of cases, and they're mostly election cases, and they come out of statutes that Congress passed a long time ago that basically say, these cases are so important, we're going to have them heard by, initially by a three-judge district court, and then it goes straight on an appeal to the Supreme Court. This is how Evanwell came up. And when the Supreme Court decides not to hear one of these cases, it is precedential. It means that the, that the lower court, in fact, got it right. Maybe not for the, those reasons, but got the right result. And so we know that the justices feel much more of a pressure to take these cases because it means they're passing on the merits uh, if they decide to not take the case. That's maybe part of the reason why this is being taken. And, you know, you, you now transition us perfectly to the other election case that's on the horizon, speaking of these three judge panels, which is Shapiro versus Mack. Yeah, right. And so this more directly uh, raises the question of these three judge courts. And I get the sense that the Supreme Court doesn't like them very much either. There was a time in the argument in one, uh, I think it was in the first uh, Citizens United argument, where Ted Olson, the former Solicitor General, uh, is addressing the Supreme Court. And he says, uh, you have issued over 500 pages of opinions on the uh, McCain-Feingold law. And Chief Justice Roberts' response was, we didn't have a choice. That is because there was a special provision of McCain-Feingold that had these three judge courts. What's at stake in the uh, Shapiro versus Mack case is uh, when the claim in one of these cases that's supposed to go to a three judge court is so weak, can a single judge just decide to get rid of it or does a whole three judge court have to be convened and then it goes up to the Supreme Court? Uh, so really inside baseball, but really important. And I can give you one historical uh, tidbit on this. There's a very famous 1966 case called Harper versus Virginia uh, State Board of Elections. It's the case that got rid of the poll tax in Virginia. There were four states that still had poll taxes, even after the federal, uh, even after we passed a constitutional amendment that barred the poll tax in federal elections. That case came up to the Supreme Court on, from a three-judge court, and initially it was going to be a six-to-three vote to uh, just summarily affirm and say, "Yeah, the poll tax is 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 still constitutional in Virginia," and then Justice Black. Uh, was upset that Justice Goldberg was writing a dissent from that uh, summary decision. And he said, you know what, we should have a whole hearing on this, because he didn't want to leave unanswered Justice Goldberg's complaints. Well, it was six to three when they initially voted, but then once they decided to have a full hearing, three justices changed their minds, and by the next uh, winter, you had a six to three decision striking down the poll tax. So getting a full hearing before the Supreme Court gets the justices into the questions, and they can actually change their minds. It's just funny to think, though, uh, of I, I think that's an, an important point because I don't often think of justices as people who are capable of changing their minds. Like the, <laughs> their decisions to me always seem so so telegraphed. It's yeah, interesting well, I to think, think they were just thoughtless. You know that they that you know they didn't really give it much thought. But once they had to address the question, then they had an opinion on it. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, if I recall that case, I think. Not black, but like Harlan and somebody else also dissented. And their yes. their reasoning was not really like 
racism okay? They, they had kind of a logical reason. They were like, well, there's a rational interest in encouraging people to vote, which I could see being compelling until you get in front of you a bunch of people explaining how the poll tax disenfranchises poor people. Yeah. Well, well, that's right. And I think that, you know, it was a question of, do you want to leave these issues to the states? Uh, especially because only four states still had the poll tax. I mean, look what's happened with the Confederate flag, right? To, you know, the bandwagon effect. Once one right. person starts getting rid of it, then everybody's, you know, they can't throw their flags out fast enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, so, so one argument is let the political process work itself out and these outliers will eventually fall away. Rick, I want to transition into talking about potentially attacks on running for president. Um, uh, recently, uh, Donald Trump um, announced that he was running for president. I wrote a post about this and I said that this is a sham campaign. It's going to last for 20 days, um, mainly because he has not made his full financial disclosure. They made a big deal in the Washington Post where he gave like a two-page summary of his finances that basically said, basically said, I'm Trump and I'm a billionaire. Love me. But the kind of invasive form that candidates actually have to file through the Federal, Federal Elections Commission, um, Trump hasn't done that. Now, as I understand it, you've got 30 days after announcing to file, and then you can apply for two 45-day extensions, which leaves you with about 120 days before Trump can't pretend like he's running for president anymore. Some of the feedback I've gotten um, from this is that that form is not really a bar towards running for president and that kind of anybody can fill that out. What, what's, your, what's your thought about that on the technical aspect? Well, I think you are right that he could well decide to leave the race uh, before he ends up filing the full disclosure. Uh, in fact, I think I just saw it was Rand Paul uh, asked for another 45-day extension uh, with his campaign claiming He's so busy running for Senate and for president that it's going to be hard to get the form filled out. Uh, I Probably also hasn't paid taxes on all the moonshine. Uh, whatever is going on there, you know, but he's seeking a delay. So it could be that Trump seeks delay, although, you know, depending on the spotlight, it might be worth filing that form. You know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know enough about what would be in that form. But I, I don't think it's really asking too much for us to understand what the financial situation is of the candidates. If you've ever done an interview with the FBI for someone who's uh, getting a background check to work in any uh, sensitive federal office. They ask you all kinds of questions that go to whether the person might be subject to undue influence, to blackmail, or anything like that. I think we need to understand what the financial situation is of someone who's going to be president, and I think it's reasonable for that information to be disclosed in a timely way for voters to be able to inspect it. Yeah, I've, when the FBI checks you out for that stuff, I've I've been I haven't applied obviously for anything, um, but I've had friends who have, and they've called me <laughs> um, um, because I knew the guy. So those jobs are taken very seriously. Do you think that there should be more barriers to entry um, for running for president? No, I mean I think it's going to be a very interesting situation uh, that we have right now uh, with so many candidates running on the Republican side and really the inability to have a, a structured debate with 13, 14, or 15 uh, candidates running. And so it's going to really be the market. It's going to be CNN and Fox who are running some of the early debates that are going to decide who's viable enough. And uh, you know, I, I think that's problematic. I'd like to see easier access to the general election debates by third-party candidates, if there are any of those. I think they bring, even if they have no chance of winning, I think they bring important issues to the table. Think of Ross Perot bringing deficit reduction issues in. You know, Pat Buchanan or Ralph Nader, they have a point of view, and it would be nice to get uh, the mainstream candidates to respond to that. 
Uh, there are actually now, I think, two lawsuits that are challenging the rules for the general election debates to try and make it easier for a third-party candidate to get into those debates. So basically, fewer 15-person debates in January and more three-person debates in September. Yes, I think that would be better. Uh, but uh, you know, I don't think we're going to get that. I don't, I don't know if these lawsuits have much of a chance uh, of succeeding. Putting aside whether or not the current debate formats are, are really helpful no matter what we do. Well, they've Must- actually come up with a new format for, that they're proposing for the debates, which would uh, get rid of the studio audience, which I think would be a good thing, except for the town hall Agreed. type events. Where you can actually yeah. hear them speak without the cheering and the hooting. From their campaign staff, right. My, my bigger issue with, with when we talk about barriers to entry and, and things that could stop Trump, um, my bigger issue with the barriers to entry to being president um, really goes to the primary calendar. Joe um, is from Iowa or Idaho or Oregon, one, but yeah, one of these early states. You 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 have fam. You have people's. Oh in yeah, Iowa. Um, yes, I do. I do have family. Not sure. yeah. So Joe's family is going to have so much more of an impact on the presidential outcome this year than I will living in New York. By which, well, first of all, I'm registered as a Democrat in New York. I've got no choice. Um, but even if I, even if I, because I mean, nobody's running. Nobody who's running against Hillary is going to be alive by the time the New York primary. <laughs> shows up. But in general, I, I, I am always uncomfortable that Iowa, New Hampshire, and recently Florida have so much power in the primary electing process. Well, there have been proposals for years to move to rotating regional primaries, which would be a sensible way to do things. You know, look, there's a lot that's wrong with our elections. I'd like to get rid of the, uh, you know, system where we have two senators for every state. I just, you know, some things are really entrenched. It's really hard to run what against. What are you, a communist? Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's really hard to run against the Iowa caucuses uh, or against New Hampshire being first. And people in Iowa are worried that they're getting less attention now. They're getting rid of the straw poll. Uh, maybe things will change. It's just really hard to get movement on that. I'm more concerned about using a caucus system. Uh, because I think it's mm. unfair. What about the voters who are overseas? What about people in our military they can't serve? Or you hold a caucus on a Saturday, and so people who are uh, Orthodox Jews can't participate, as in Nevada. Or uh, someone has to be out of town on a business trip. They're, they're disenfranchised. No secret ballot in some of these places. So I think uh, I, you know, I had a piece in 2008 on Slate called Kill the Caucuses, and I still think uh, that's something that we need to do. We should really move to primaries. We should move to regional primaries where they rotate, uh, so in every election, uh, a different part of the country would be able to go first. But I just don't know how we get there. Yeah. One thing that I've always thought about, and I, I don't like that New Hampshire has disproportionate power, but one thing about it is it's so small, and you do have candidates who interact more and constantly with people because just the size of the state means they get to have more hands-on than they do when they're crisscrossing Texas or something like that. Sure, but if if that state were Vermont or Hawaii uh, or Wyoming, you know, you'd be meeting very different people. You know, all states, Rhode Island, all states with relatively small populations. Very, very uh, homogeneous place. Yeah, and I I would love to see every candidate have to go to Alaska for six Six or seven weeks in uh, December and January. Look, man, John McCain was almost John McCain was almost president twice because he was king of New Hampshire. That struck me as a problem. Coming to the end here, Rick, um, I want to ask you one more uh, slightly whimsical question. So, I generally have a bone to pick with the Twenty Second Amendment. Uh, for those who don't know, or 
or, or don't feel like Googling it right away, 22nd Amendment is the amendment that we have that limits the term of president of presidents to, sorry, of being elected president to two four-year terms. There are some interesting M. Night Shyamalan things that you could probably figure out to get more than um, your two terms. But in general, that's why Reagan couldn't run for a third term. That's why Obama can't run for a third term. That's why Clinton couldn't run for a third term. I don't like them. I think that we should have one or two systems. One, one election, six years, and you're done. I think they do that in many European cases. Mexico. Great. (laughs) Or two, just straight up imperial presidency. If you can win three terms, if you can win four terms, you can be FDR, go for it. I think the country would have been better if Reagan could have actually lost, just actually finally gotten beat. I don't care if he would have had to have been old and senile to do it. If Reagan had actually gotten beaten as opposed to being able to ride off into the sunset of his own petard, I think that would have been better for the country. Yeah, I guess I will disagree with you on this one. I think that presidency is such a bubble and presidents get so uh, isolated from the real world that getting some change makes some sense. And, you know, the, you might say, well, let the voters figure it out. I think that the power of incumbency is strong and especially the power of the presidency is so strong. It's really hard to beat a uh, sitting president, uh, even when they're not so popular. Think about the last time when Obama ran for a second term or when Bush ran for a second term. There were large segments of the population that weren't happy with both of them, but they still were able to prevail. And I, I think getting some fresh blood is a, is a good thing. Uh, I don't like term limits for state uh, legislators. We have them in California, and I think they empower lobbyists. I hate term limits on the local scale because I think you just lose too much institutional memory. Yeah, um, you, lose exp- you lose expertise, you lose people who have connections. And, and it doesn't really stop professional politicians. They just move from one job to another. And they compete right. against each other and, you know, kind of this uh, civil war within, within the, the parties. And, you know, I don't think that serves any benefit. But I think for pre- the presidency is unique in terms of its power and in terms of the power of incumbency. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm for that uh, provision of the Constitution. But then what about the Mexico plan? If, if the power of the – I mean, look, we've only had, what, one – I was born in 78. So technically there have been two one-term presidents in my lifetime, Carter um, and Bush, uh, the Bush the first, and really he had three terms. Uh, um, what about the Mexico plan? The power of incumbency is so, is so powerful. Um, let's limit it to six years and then get them out of there. Also, that means they don't have to run again, which means they might actually spend some of their time in office governing as opposed to campaigning. Yeah, I could be on board with that one much more easily than uh, having a president for uh, 12 or 16 years. I don't know, man. A permanent lame duck from the first day you show up? I don't know what that would do to embolden a Congress, you know? Like, uh, they already don't listen to you when you're a lame duck president. What, a, what if you're permanently one? They already don't listen to you. Black. I think they listen to, to other presidents just fine. And the question is, you know, what did Obama get on his reelection? Did he get more power? You know, what was yeah. he able to accomplish? Now, I'm not sure he got much. No, I mean, yeah. very little more. Well, definitely could have been more if Congress had turned out differently, I suppose. But certainly yeah. without a Congress. Yeah, and that would be the same with the second term, right? So yeah. I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure about that one. All right. All right. Sometimes I guess we can't change things just for the sake of changing them. Uh, you, make, you make a compelling point there. Well, all right then. I think that brings us pretty close to time. I want to thank Professor Hassan. 
who I've got right now. So finally, like it, it took the whole episode, but I got there for joining us today. That was very informative. And in, it's kind of important that, like you said, there's going to be a lot of decisions that overshadow these election cases, probably unfairly. And it's good to kind of bring that out to the fore. Rick, we're absolutely going to have to have you back when the field, especially as the field starts to whittle and we get into heavy, heavy electioneering in 2016. I look forward to it. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. If you enjoy the podcast and you aren't already subscribing to it on iTunes, I don't know why, but you should be because that helps. Also, give us reviews. That always helps us with the internal ordering system of Apple. Read us. We're at Above the Law and at ATL Redline saying things all the time. We both have Twitter accounts that you can find. So we're, we're out there. Any parting words there, Ellie? No, I just need, I need to cool off now. It's nope. Okay. <laughs> um, because talking got you so excited. It always does. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Thanks, Ellie, for being here as always. And we'll talk to you all in the near future. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.